The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. We're listening to the song The Amorous Goldfish from the smash 1896 musical comedy The Geisha. The Geisha appears during a key moment in our story today when two star-crossed lovers reunite in a Russian provincial town after the charismatic but world-weary man correctly guesses that his lover will attend the show's premiere. The two embarked upon a passionate but complicated affair at the seaside resort of Yalta, and have not seen each other since. That's right, we're talking about Anton Chekhov's short story masterpiece, The Lady with the Little Dog, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad you're here to join me today. I'm back from vacation. Paris, Switzerland, and my beloved Italy, which was, as always, so wonderful to me. It's good to me, that place. It's good for me. I'm feeling better, even though the news seems to be getting worse, and I have a lot of thoughts about what it means to be an American, always so exposed when you go on a trip figuring out who you are, your place in the world, things have changed. Traveling abroad in the last 25 years or so, it's different now. I'm different, and it's different. But let's leave those thoughts for another day. Today, let's focus on the story of another traveler, or a pair of travelers, who are also on vacation, in Chekhov's beautiful and stunning story, The Lady with the Little Dog. This will be another one of our self-contained episodes where you don't need to read the story in advance. All you need to do is sit back and listen. We'll have Mike Palindrome here in a moment, and he and I will set up this 1899 masterpiece. Then I'll read the story, and then Mike will come back to offer some further thoughts. This is the 150th episode of the History of Literature. It seems like some celebrations are in order, don't you think? Ah, there we go. Thanks, Gar. It seems celebratory to have a 150 episodes and a time for giving thanks. I had a goal when I started this thing to have a million downloads. That's what I told myself. Don't quit until you have a million downloads, which I didn't really know was possible. I thought it might take 20 years or 100 years. I didn't think that that many people would listen to this kind of a show. I know, I know. People read books. People love literature. I'm not discounting that. I get all that. Literature is popular. But I know people get their literature from NPR and the BBC and from all of the slick, polished podcasts out there. Not one with a producer who actively works against me. 
See, that's kind of what I'm talking about. Why do we have the celebration music for that, Gar? Ah, there we go, undermining me at every turn. But actually, we're close to a million downloads, and, in fact, we might have already passed it. I have to check the stats. I thought it might take 20 years to get there, and I think it's taken about three. So that's wonderful. And I have all of you to thank, and all of my guests, and all of the commenters, and tweeters, and Facebookers, and all of the donors, whether that's from patreon.com slash literature, or historyofliterature.com slash shop. 150 great episodes, and who knows where we'll go next. We're on the air in Norway. Some radio station has picked up the show, which I don't know much about, frankly. Well, <laughs> that's one development. We'll keep going for a little while at least, even though we are close or have crossed the million download figure until I confirm that we're over a million and until I figure out the next steps, what we should do with this little project. Hey, I didn't mean to talk about this this way. It sounds like I'm shutting down the show. That's not what I meant to do at all. I meant to say that I didn't really plan anything special for the 150th episode, but things worked out perfectly because Chekhov is one of my true heroes. And this story, The Lady with the Little Dog, is one of those stories that makes me want to go on living. It was written in 1899 when Chekhov had fallen in love with Olga Nipper, the actress he eventually married a few years before his death. Before then, Chekhov had lived a kind of restless, energetic, itinerant life, moving from project to project, filling his days with his job as a physician, his charitable and humanitarian projects, his societal appearances, love affairs, and of course, his writing. Short stories for newspapers and journals, and the plays that made him famous. There's a quality about him that I love, an unassuming and unflinching look at the world and humanity, writing about the human condition in frank, unadorned style, with surprises that are not gimmicks, but which come about as naturally as the twists and turns of the curious behavior of a man or a woman afraid of something, or in awe of something, or desperate to get something, or being in love. Here's Nabokov on one aspect of Chekhov, his humor. Quote, Chekhov's books are sad books for humorous people. That is, only a reader with a sense of humor can really appreciate their sadness. Things for Chekhov were funny and sad at the same time, but you would not see their sadness if you did not see their fun, because both were linked up. End quote. That's an easy thing to try to do for an artist and a much harder thing to accomplish. The art can turn out hokey or maudlin or manipulative, or it can be not funny. It can be trying too hard. It can be dry and boring. But in the hands of a master, which in this case means both a master humanist and a master artist, like Chekhov, it can be transcendent. A wonderful subject for a celebratory episode. Chekhov's The Lady with the Little Dog, after this.
Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is our old friend Mike Palindrome, president of the Literature Supporters Club, who comes back to the History of Literature podcast. Mike, thanks again for joining us. Hey, Jack. Happy summer. Thank you. So we're <laughs> we're going to be looking at and talking about uh, just a short story by Anton Chekhov. This is a total classic. Before I tip my hand here, I'm wondering what you how you refer to the title. You know, I I always just call it the lady with the dog. The lady with the dog. Yeah, I know yeah. there. The translation there are. Uh, it's been called the lady with a, with a dog, the lady with the little dog, the lady with the small dog, lady with dog is sort of the literal translation, and the lady with the pet dog, and the lady with the lap dog. There's probably others as well, but the lady with the dog seems like a safe choice. I kind of like. The lady with the little dog. I I don't like dogs, so it's it wasn't. <laughs> it's not an aspect of the story that appealed to me. Although I, I, you know, it's the whole Chekhov and the 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 gun over the fireplace thing, right? Yeah, that it's, if if there's a dog mentioned, it's got to be in the story. Yeah, it, it's got to serve like a a purpose, a grand it, purpose. It serves a bit of a purpose. And one of the things we can do after we, so let's introduce the story now. And one of the things we can do after we come back yeah. is talk about the dog's presence is not really as prominent as one might think, given that it's right there in the title. It really is. Uh, even people who don't like dogs shouldn't be scared off that this <laughs> is not all about a, a woman and her pet, but it's, it's really about a woman and a man. Well, the, the, he kind of called the story the the woman and the Pomeranian because I think yeah. that to me that's a more important detail than that the fact that it's just a mere dog, but it's a certain class value attached mm. to mm -hmm. owning a Pomeranian. Yeah, and going on a trip where you go to a seaside resort and you take the dog with you. Yeah, exactly. Taking the dog on a vacation. Yeah, maybe that's loneliness. Maybe that's a, a class thing, as you say, or maybe a little bit affected. Uh, but in any case, it has a nice, has some nice uh, appearances in the story, this Pomeranian. Yeah, I mean, not, not to give anything away. So where were you in life when you first read Chekhov? 
So I was uh, I was 25, and mm-hmm. it's one of those books I've always had in my library, but never got around to reading. And then I uh, I was trying to impress a coworker who was extremely well read and loved. He loved Cherry Orchard and Three Sisters because mm. he was dating he was dating a theater actress, mm-hmm. and um, they, the the two of them said if if you only read one playwright, it's Chekhov. Mm. So the, when you first encountered Chekhov, it was through reading his plays? Yeah. And for a long time, I only read his plays. And mm. for the life of me, I'm not sure I could... I, I know many of his short stories. Oh, right. Okay. So when... Do you remember reading this one? Or was this new to you, new for you at the uh, for the podcast? I think I read it uh, once in my late 20s. And was very surprised by it. Hmm. I think I expected sort of something more predictable. I, I think I had this idea in my 20s that anything old, meaning prior to 19, you know, the 50s or something, yeah, would be kind of well, what you see is what you get. Yeah, I really, I really loved it. And then for the podcast, I read the story three times in the last week. <laughs> So that was an interesting thing to do. And I read one, two of the translations were the same, it turned out, but one was different. Oh, okay. So So before we move on from the unpredictable or predictability of it, there's a great quote that I found that Nabokov had written where he was talking about the story. And he said, quote, all the traditional rules have been broken in this wonderful short story. No, pro- uh, yeah. he said, no problem, no regular climax, no point at the end, and it is one of the greatest stories ever written. So it it is it it's got a kind of depth to it. Uh, it's kind of sneaky in a way too. It it I think it's it's sort of unassuming. He had another another quote where he said Chekhov's literary style goes to parties clad in its everyday suit. <laughs> and when you first start reading it, you maybe think it's it's going to be just a, a straightforward story, but then it takes a lot of interesting twists and turns and uh, really opens up into some interesting areas. Yeah, definitely. It You, you start it and um, you, you feel like it's going to go one way and then it goes another. And, you know, he, he I was reading about Chekhov's life and he he loved writing stories much more than writing plays mm. and yeah. um, he never suffered from writer's block I, I love this quote they they asked him how do you write such great stories and he, he was at some dinner party and he looked around the room and he found an ashtray <laughs> yeah. and he said there's a story tomorrow I'll write you a story called the ashtray <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've heard that. I don't know if he ever actually did. I don't know if, if we have that story. But yeah, he he did seem to, um, and maybe we can talk about this a little bit after we actually hear the story. But I think it's yeah. because of the way he viewed life made it possible for him to find the stories so easily. Yeah. Even in objects. it's It's because of the way he had trained himself to look at the world and to look at human beings and to look at life itself. Yeah, I mean, you hear about all these writers that are recluses and, you know, uh, social um, wallflowers, and 
I mean, by all accounts, Chekhov was like the life of the party. Yeah. He was, he was a charismatic, good-looking guy. He was popular um, in his youth. I think he was really well-read when he was in his early 30s. Mm. Yeah. He was he was he was kind of a rock star, and he was very successful. His grandfather was a serf. Yeah. Uh, his father was was kind of a a tough guy. Uh, a lot of flogging in Chekhov's childhood, but he does seem to this the social stories I like about him always seem to involve him undermining pretentiousness and yeah. focusing on you know, redirecting the conversation to just focus on things that everyone cares about rather than, you know, grand theories or uh, political discussions. Well, I think when I was younger, that would throw me off a little bit because I expected more mm. sort of aristocratic style yeah. to the writing and there and it wasn't there. Yep. So, yeah. And... Uh, it's interesting, even someone like Nabokov, who has about an aristocratic style as is possible and, and is sort of a high literary style, really yeah. admired Chekhov's style and, and the way that it, I think he, he said, everything was the exact same tint of gray. <laughs> Here's the quote hit here. Uh, the magical part of Chekhov's style is that in spite of his tolerating flaws, which a bright beginner would have avoided, Chekhov manages to convey an impression of artistic beauty far surpassing that of many writers who thought they knew what rich, beautiful prose was. And it does make you wonder if, if Nabokov, when he read Chekhov, had kind of a, you know, he must have seen the distinction between himself and Chekhov. And you wonder if he envied Chekhov a bit for having a more plain style. Yeah, there's such economy in his in this story, um, and it I, it really makes me think of his plays. The way you never get in his plays that kind of back and forth that you sometimes get, especially now uh, with contemporary plays. But you know, it's kind of like this back and forth noise that is supposed to create this momentum. When in fact, when the, your story is interesting, that is the that's the momentum. You know, right. Right. And, uh, so is there anything else we should talk about before we listen to the story? Is there are there any any points you'd like to make to help the listener prepare for listening to the story? I was going to ask the the listeners to think about how the story makes you feel in, in your heart cuz I often don't use that expression, but mm. that's what I that's what I think of when I read the story is 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 w how you sway morally and how, how you feel in your gut. Mm. More than uh, other stories, it might be, it affects you at a, in a cerebral way. But yeah, this one like is... You can, like you can think it through other stories, but this story, I think it's really like how you feel at the end, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so. great. I, I'm almost... Uh... I almost don't want to include the thing that I had said <laughs> because <laughs> because that's so good. So maybe I'll just uh I'll just repeat that one. <laughs> but the the thing that I did have was I just admire so much how easy and effortless Chekhov sets up his characters, not just the physical appearance, but just the state of their souls. 
uh, yeah. which is often such a clunky, you know, that you can see the the authors working so hard uh, to, right. to get that in, and, and maybe they go out of their way to, to convey something that's extremely subtle or especially clever. You know, you, you end up really thinking about the writing itself or the author, and Chekhov instead he just quickly sketches these characters and it feels they feel so real and so rich and so that's something to listen to how that's done yeah it definitely makes it worth rereading too yeah okay so let's listen to the story and then we'll come back and give some further analysis sounds good The Lady with the Little Dog 1. They were saying a new face had been seen on the esplanade, a lady with a little dog. Dmitri Dmitrich Gurov, who had already spent two weeks in Yalta and regarded himself as an old hand, was beginning to show an interest in new faces. He was sitting in Vernet's coffee house when he saw a young lady, blonde and fairly tall, wearing a beret and walking along the esplanade. A white, Pomeranian was trotting behind her. Later, he encountered her several times a day in the public gardens or in the square. She walked alone, always wearing the same beret and always accompanied by the Pomeranian. No one knew who she was, and people called her simply the lady with the little dog. If she is here alone without a husband or any friends, thought Gurov, then it wouldn't be a bad idea to make her acquaintance. He was under 40, but he already had a 12-year-old daughter and two boys at school. He had married young, when still a second-year student in college, and by now his wife looked nearly twice as old as he did. She was a tall, erect woman with dark eyebrows, dignified and imposing, who called herself a thinking person. She read a good deal, used simplified spelling in her letters, and called her husband Dimitri instead of Dimitri. Though he secretly regarded her as a woman of limited intelligence, narrow-minded and rather dowdy, he stood in awe of her and disliked being at home. Long ago he had begun being unfaithful to her, and he was now constantly unfaithful, and perhaps that was why he nearly always spoke ill of women and whenever they were discussed in his presence, he would call them the lower race. It seemed to him that he had been so schooled by bitter experience that he was entitled to call them anything he liked, but he was unable to live for even two days without the lower race. In the company of men he was bored, cold, ill at ease, and uncommunicative, but felt at home among women and knew what to say to them and how to behave, and even when he was silent in their presence, he felt at ease. In his appearance, in his character, in his whole nature, there was something charming and elusive which made him attractive to women and cast a spell over them. He knew this, and was himself attracted to them by some mysterious power. Repeated and bitter experience had taught him that every fresh intimacy, which at first seems to give the spice of variety to life and a sense of delightful and easy conquest, inevitably ends by introducing excessively complicated problems and creating 
intolerable situations. This is particularly true of the well-intentioned Moscow people, who are irresolute and slow to embark on adventures. But with every new encounter with an interesting woman, he forgot all about his former experiences, and the desire to live surged in him, and everything suddenly seemed simple and amusing. One evening, when he was dining in the public gardens, the lady in the beret came strolling up and sat down at the next table. Her expression, her clothes, her way of walking, the way she did her hair, suggested that she belonged to the upper classes, that she was married, that she was paying her first visit to Yalta, and that she was alone and bored. Stories told about immorality in Yalta are largely untrue, and for his part Gurov despised them, knowing they were mostly invented by people who were only too ready to sin if they had the chance. But when the lady sat down at the next table a few yards away from him, he remembered all those stories of easy conquests and trips to the mountains, and he was suddenly possessed with the tempting thought of a quick and temporary liaison, a romance with an unknown woman of whose very name he was ignorant. He beckoned invitingly at the Pomeranian, and when the little dog came up to him, he shook his finger at it. The Pomeranian began to bark. Then Gurov wagged his finger again. The lady glanced up at him and immediately lowered her eyes. He doesn't bite, she said and blushed. May I give him a bone? Gurov said, and when she nodded, he asked politely, Have you been long in Yalta? Five days, and I am dragging through my second week. There was silence for a while. Time passes so quickly, and it is so dull here, she said without looking at him. It's quite the fashion to say it is boring here, he replied. People who live out their lives in places like Balevo or Zizdro are not bored, but when they come here they say, how dull, all this dust. One would think they live in Granada. She laughed. Then they both went on eating in silence, like complete strangers. But after dinner... They walked off together and began to converse lightly and playfully like people who are completely at their ease and contented with themselves, and it is all the same to them where they go or what they talk about. They walked and talked about the strange light of the sea, the soft, warm, lilac color of the water, and the golden pathway made by the moonlight. They talked of how sultry it was after a hot day. Gurov told her he came from Moscow, that he had been trained as a philologist, though he now worked in a bank, that at one time he had trained to be an opera singer, but had given it up, and he told her about the two houses he owned in Moscow. From her he learned that she grew up in St. Petersburg and had been married in the town of S., where she had been living for the past two years, that she would stay another month in Yalta, and perhaps her husband, who also needed a rest, would come to join her. She was not sure whether her husband was a member of a government board or on the Zemstvo Council, and this amused her. Gurov learned that her name was Anna Sergeyevna. 
Afterwards, in his room at the hotel, he thought about her and how they would surely meet on the following day. It was inevitable. Getting into bed, he recalled that only a little while ago she was a schoolgirl, doing lessons like his own daughter, and he remembered how awkward and timid she was in her laughter and in her manner of talking with a stranger. It was probably the first time in her life that she had found herself all alone, in a situation where men followed her, gazed at her, and talked with her, always with a secret purpose she could not fail to guess. He thought of her slender and delicate throat and her lovely gray eyes. There's something pathetic about her, he thought, as he fell asleep. 2. A week had passed since they met. It was a holiday. Indoors it was oppressively hot, but the dust rose in clouds out of doors, and the people's hats whirled away. All day long Gurov was plagued with thirst, and kept going to the soft drink stand to offer Anna Sergeyevna a soft drink or an ice cream. There was no refuge from the heat. In the evening, when the wind dropped, they walked to the pier to watch the steamer come in. There were a great many people strolling along the pier. They had come to welcome friends, and they carried bunches of flowers. Two peculiarities of a festive Yalta crowd stood out distinctly. The elderly ladies were dressed like young women, and there were innumerable generals. Because there was a heavy sea, the steamer was late, and already the sun was going down. The steamer had to maneuver for a long time before it could take its place beside the jetty. Anna Sergeyevna scanned the steamer, and the passengers threw her lorgnette, as though searching for someone she knew. And when she turned to Gurov, her eyes were shining. She talked a good deal with sudden abrupt questions and quickly forgot what she had been saying. And then she lost her lorgnette in the crush. The smartly dressed people went away, and it was now too dark to recognize faces. The wind had dropped, but Gurov and Anna Sergeyevna still stood there, as though waiting for someone to come off the steamer. Anna Sergeyevna had fallen silent, and every now and then she would smell her flowers. She did not look at Gurov. The weather is better this evening, he said. Where shall we go now? We might go for a drive. He gazed at her intently, and suddenly embraced her and kissed her on the lips, overwhelmed by the perfume and moisture of the flowers. And then, frightened, he looked around. Had anyone observed them? Let us go to your... he said softly. They walked away quickly. Her room was oppressively hot, and there was the scent of the perfume she had bought at a Japanese shop. Gurov gazed at her, and all the while he was thinking, How strange are our meetings! Out of the past there came to him the memory of other careless, good-natured women, happy in their lovemaking, grateful for the joy he gave them, however short. And then he remembered other women, like his wife, whose caresses were insincere, and who talked endlessly in an affected and hysterical manner with an expression which said this was not love or passion, but something far more meaningful. And then he thought of the few very beautiful cold women on whose faces there would suddenly appear the glow of a fierce flame, 
a stubborn desire to take, to wring from life more than it can give. Women who were no longer in their first youth, capricious, imprudent, unreflecting, and domineering. And when Gurov grew cold to them, their beauty aroused his hatred, and the lace trimming of their lingerie reminded him of fish scales. But here there was all the shyness and awkwardness of inexperienced youth, a feeling of embarrassment, as though someone had suddenly knocked on the door. Anna Sergeyevna, the lady with the little dog, accepted what had happened in her own special way, gravely and seriously, as though she had accomplished her own downfall, an attitude which he found odd and disconcerting. Her features faded and drooped away, and on both sides of her face the long hair hung mournfully down, while she sat musing disconsolately, like an adulteress in an antique painting. It's not right, she said. You're the first person not to respect me. There was a watermelon on the table. Gurov cut off a slice and began eating it slowly. For at least half an hour, they were silent. There was something touching about Anna Sergeyevna, revealing the purity of a simple and naive woman who knew very little about life. The single candle burning on the table barely illumined her face, but it was clear that she was deeply unhappy. Why should I not respect you? Gaurav said. You don't know what you are saying. God forgive me, she said, and her eyes filled with tears. It's terrible. You don't have to justify yourself. How can I justify myself? No, I am a wicked, fallen woman. I despise myself and have no desire to justify myself. It isn't my husband I have deceived, but myself. And not only now, I have been deceiving myself for a long time. My husband may be a good, honest man, but he is also a flunky. I don't know what work he does, but I know that he is a flunky. When I married him, I was twenty. I was devoured with curiosity. I longed for something better. Surely, I told myself, there is another kind of life. I wanted to live, to live, only to live. I was burning with curiosity. You won't understand, but I swear by God I was no longer in control of myself. Something strange was going on in me. I could not hold back. I told my husband I was ill, and I came here. And now I have been walking about as though in a daze, like someone who has gone out of her senses. And now I am nothing else but a low, common woman, and anyone may despise me. Gurov listened to her, bored to death. He was irritated with her naive tone and with her remorse, so unexpected and so out of place. But for the tears in her eyes, he would have thought she was joking or playing a part. I don't understand, he said gently. What do you want? She laid her face against his chest and pressed close to him. Believe me, Believe me, I beg you, she said. I love all that is honest and pure in life, and sin is hateful to me. I don't know what I am doing. There are simple people who say the evil one led her astray, and now I can say of myself that the evil one has led me astray.
Don't say such things, he murmured. Then he gazed into her frightened, staring eyes, kissed her, spoke softly and affectionately, and gradually he was able to quieten her, and she was happy again, and then they both began to laugh. Afterwards, when they went out, there was not a soul on the esplanade. The town with its cypresses looked like a city of the dead, but the sea still roared and hurled itself against the shore. A single boat was rocking on the waves, and the lantern on it shone with a sleepy light. They found a cab and drove to Orianda. I discovered your name in the foyer just now, he said. It was written up on the board. Von Diedrichs. Is your husband German? No. I believe his grandfather was German, but he himself is an Orthodox Russian. At Orianda they sat on a bench not far from the church and gazed below at the sea and were lost in silence. Yalta was scarcely visible through the morning mist. Motionless white clouds covered the mountaintops. No leaves rustled, but the cicadas sang, and the monotonous muffled thunder of the sea coming up from below spoke of the peace, the eternal sleep awaiting us. This muffled thunder rose from the sea when neither Yalta nor Orianda existed, and so it roars and will roar, dully, indifferently, after we have passed away. In this constancy of the sea, in her perfect indifference to our living and dying, there lies perhaps the promise of our eternal salvation, the unbroken stream of life on earth, and its unceasing movement toward perfection. Sitting beside the young woman, who looked so beautiful in the dawn, Gurov was soothed and enchanted by the fairy-like scene, the sea and the mountains, the clouds and the broad sky. He pondered how everything in the universe, if properly understood, would be entirely beautiful, but for our own thoughts and actions, when we lose sight of the higher purposes of life, and our human dignity. Someone came up to them, probably a coast guard, looked at them, and then walked away. His coming seemed full of mystery and beauty. Then in the glow of the early dawn, they saw the steamer coming from Theodosia, its lights already doused. There is dew on the grass, said Anna Sergeyevna after a silence. Yes, it's time to go home. They went back to the town. Thereafter, they met every day at noon on the esplanade, lunched and dined together, went out on excursions, and admired the sea. She complained of sleeping badly and of the violent beating of her heart, and she kept asking the same questions over and over again, alternately surrendering to jealousy and the fear that he did not really respect her and often in the square or in the public gardens when there was no one near, he would suddenly draw her to him and kiss her passionately. Their perfect idleness, those kisses in the full light of day, exchanged circumspectly and furtively for fear that anyone should see them. The heat, the smell of the sea, the continual glittering procession of idle, fashionable, well-fed people, all this 
seemed to give him a new lease of life. He kept telling Anna Sergeyevna how beautiful and seductive she was. He was impatient and passionate for her, and he never left her side. While she brooded continually, always trying to make him confess that he had no respect for her, did not love her at all, and saw in her nothing but a loose woman. Almost every evening at a late hour they would leave the town and drive out to Orianda or to the waterfall, and these excursions were invariably a success, while the sensations they enjoyed were invariably beautiful and sublime. All this time they were waiting for her husband to come, but he sent a letter saying he was having trouble with his eyes and imploring her to come home as soon as possible. Anna Sergeyevna made haste to obey. It's a good thing I am going away, she told Gurov. It is fate. She took a carriage to the railroad station, and he went with her. The drive took nearly a whole day. When she had taken her seat in the express train, and when the second bell had rung, she said, Let me have one more look at you, just one more, like that. She did not cry but looked sad and ill, and her face trembled. I shall always think of you and remember you, she said. God be with you. Think kindly of me. We shall never meet again. That's all for the good, for we should never have met. God bless you. The train moved off rapidly, and soon its lights vanished, and in a few moments the sound of the engine grew silent as though everything were conspiring to put an end to this sweet oblivion, this madness. Alone on the platform, gazing into the dark distance, Gurov listened to the crying of the cicadas and the humming of the telegraph wires with the feeling that he had only just this moment woken up. And he told himself that this was just one more of the many adventures in his life, and it was now over and there remained only a memory. He was confused, sad, and filled with a faint sensation of remorse. After all, this young woman, whom he would never meet again, had not been happy with him. He had been affectionate and sincere, but in his manner, his tone, his caresses, there had always been a suggestion of irony the insulting arrogance of a successful male who was almost twice her age. And always she had called him kind, exceptional, noble. Obviously he had seemed to her different from what he really was, and unintentionally he had deceived her. Here at the railroad station there was the scent of autumn in the air, and the evening was cold. It's time for me to go north too, Gurov thought as he left the platform. High time. 3. At home in Moscow, winter was already at hand. The stoves were heated, and it was still dark when the children got up to go to school, and the nurse would light the lamp for a short while. Already there was frost. When the first snow falls and people go out for the first time on sleighs, it is good to see the white ground, the white roofs, one breathes easily and lightly, and one remembers the days of one's youth. The old lime trees and birches have a kindly look about them, 
They lie closer to one's heart than cypresses and palms, and below their branches one has no desire to dream of mountains and the sea. Gurov, a native of Moscow, arrived there on a fine, frosty day, and when he put on his fur coat and warm gloves and went for a stroll along the Petrovka, and when on Saturday evening he heard the church bells ringing, then his recent travels and all the places he had visited lost their charm for him. Little by little he became immersed in Moscow life, eagerly read three newspapers a day, and declared that, on principle, he never read Moscow newspapers. Once more he was caught up in a whirl of restaurants, clubs, banquets, and celebrations, and it was flattering to have famous lawyers and actors visiting his house, and flattering to play cards with a professor at the doctor's club. He could eat a whole portion of selyanka, a cabbage stew, straight off the frying pan. So a month would pass, and the image of Anna Sergeyevna, he thought, would vanish into the mists of memory and only rarely would she visit his dreams with her touching smile, like the other women who appeared in his dreams. But more than a month went by. Soon it was the dead of winter, and the memory of Anna Sergeyevna remained as vivid as if he had parted from her only the day before. And these memories kept glowing with an even stronger flame. Whether it was in the silence of the evening when he was in his study, and heard the voices of his children preparing their lessons, or listening to a song, or the music in a restaurant, or a storm howling in the chimney. Suddenly, all his memories would spring to life again. What happened on the pier, the misty mountains in the early morning, the steamer coming in from Theodosia, their kisses. He would pace up and down the room for a long while, remembering it all and smiling to himself, and later these memories would fill his dreams, and in his imagination the past would mingle with the future. When he closed his eyes, he saw her as though she were standing before him in the flesh, younger, lovelier, tenderer than she had really been, and he imagined himself a finer person than he had been in Yalta. In the evenings she peered at him from the bookshelves, the fireplace, a corner of the room. He heard her breathing and the soft rustle of her skirts. In the street he followed the women with his eyes, looking for someone who resembled her. He began to feel an overwhelming desire to share his memories with someone. But in his home, it was impossible for him to talk of his love, and away from home, there was no one. The tenants who lived in his house and his colleagues at the bank were equally useless. And what could he tell them? Had he really been in love? Was there anything beautiful, poetic, edifying, or even interesting in his relations with Anna Sergeyevna? He found himself talking about women and love in vague generalities, and nobody guessed what he meant. And only his wife twitched her dark eyebrows and said, Really, Dimitri? The role of a coxcomb does not suit you at all. One evening he was coming out of the doctor's club with one of his card partners, a government official, and he could not prevent himself from saying, If you only knew what a fascinating woman I met in Yalta. The official sat down in the sleigh and was driving away when he suddenly turned round and shouted, Dimitri! What? 
You were quite right just now. The sturgeon wasn't fresh. These words, in themselves so commonplace, for some reason aroused Gaurav's indignation. They seemed somehow dirty and degrading. What savage manners! What awful faces! What wasted nights! What dull days devoid of interest! Frenzied card-playing, gluttony, drunkenness, endless conversations about the same thing. Futile pursuits and conversations about the same topics, taking up the greater part of the day and the greater part of a man's strength so that he was left to live out a curtailed, bobtailed life with his wings clipped. An idiotic mess, impossible to run away or escape. One might as well be in a madhouse or a convict settlement. Gurov, boiling with indignation, did not sleep a wink that night, and all the next day he suffered from a headache. On the following nights, too, he slept badly, sitting up in bed, thinking or pacing the floor of his room. He was fed up with his children, fed up with the bank, had not the slightest desire to go anywhere or talk about anything. During the December holidays, he decided to go on a journey and told his wife he had to go to St. Petersburg on some business connected with a certain young friend of his. Instead, he went to the town of S. Why? He hardly knew himself. He wanted to see Anna Sergeyevna and talk with her and, if possible, arrange a rendezvous. He arrived at S during the morning and took the best room in the hotel, where the floor was covered with gray army cloth, and on the table there was an inkstand, gray with dust, topped by a headless rider holding a hat in his raised hand. The porter gave him the necessary information. Von Diedrichs lived on old Gonchernaya Street, in a house of his own not far from the hotel, lived on a grand scale, luxuriously, and kept his own horses. The whole town knew him. The porter pronounced the name Drideritz. He was in no hurry. He walked along old Gonchernaya Street and found the house. In front of the house stretched a long gray fence studded with nails. You'd run away from a fence like that, Gurov thought, glancing now at the windows of the house, now at the fence. He thought, today is a holiday, and her husband is probably at home. In any case, it would be tactless to go up to the house and upset her, and if I sent her a note, it might fall into her husband's hands and bring about a catastrophe. The best thing is to trust to chance. So he kept walking up and down the street by the fence, waiting for the chance. He saw a beggar entering the gates, only to be attacked by dogs, and about an hour later he heard someone playing on a piano, but the sounds were very faint and indistinct. Probably Anna Sergeyevna was playing. Suddenly the front door opened, and an old woman came out, followed by the familiar white Pomeranian. Gurov thought of calling out to the dog, but his heart suddenly began to beat violently, and he was so excited he could not remember the dog's name. As he walked on, he came to hate the gray fence more and more, and it occurred to him with a sense of irritation that Anna Sergeyevna had forgotten him and was perhaps amusing herself with another man 
and that was very natural in a young woman who had nothing to look at from morning to night but that damned fence. He went back to his hotel room and for a long while sat on the sofa, not knowing what to do. Then he ordered dinner and took a long nap. How absurd and tiresome it is, he thought when he woke and looked at the dark windows, for evening had fallen. Well, I've had some sleep, and what is there to do tonight? He sat up in the bed, which was covered with a cheap gray blanket of the kind seen in hospitals, and he taunted himself with anger and vexation. You and your lady with the little dog, there's a fine adventure for you. You're in a nice fix now. However, at the railroad station that morning, his eye had been caught by a playbill advertising in enormous letters the first performance of the geisha. He remembered this and drove to the theater. It's very likely that she goes to first nights, he told himself. The theater was full. There, as so often in provincial theaters, a thick haze hung above the chandeliers, and the crowds in the gallery were fidgeting noisily. In the first row of the orchestra, the local dandies were standing with their hands behind their backs, waiting for the curtain to rise, while in the governor's box, the governor's daughter, wearing a boa, sat in front, the governor himself sitting modestly behind the drapes, with only his hands visible. The curtain was swaying. The orchestra spent a long time tuning up. While the audience was coming in and taking their seats, Gurov was looking impatiently around him. And then Anna Sergeyevna came in. She sat in the third row, and when Gurov looked at her, his heart seemed to stop, and he understood clearly that the whole world contained no one nearer, dearer, and more important than Anna. This slight woman lost amid a provincial rabble, in no way remarkable, with her silly lorgnette in her hands, filled his whole life. She was his sorrow and his joy, the only happiness he desired for himself, and to the sounds of the wretched orchestra, with its feeble provincial violins, he thought how beautiful she was. He thought and dreamed. There came with Anna Sergeyevna a young man with small side whiskers, very tall and stooped, who inclined his head at every step and seemed to be continually bowing. Probably this was the husband she once described as a flunky one day in Yalta when she was in a bitter mood. And indeed in his lanky figure, his side whiskers, his small bald patch, there was something of a flunky's servility. He smiled sweetly, and in his buttonhole there was an academic badge, like the number worn by a waiter. During the first intermission, the husband went away to smoke, and she remained in her seat. Gurov, who was also sitting in the orchestra, went up to her and said in a trembling voice, with a forced smile, How are you? She looked up at him and turned pale then glanced at him again in horror, unable to believe her eyes, tightly gripping the fan and the lorgnette, evidently fighting to overcome a feeling of faintness. 
both were silent. She sat, he stood, and he was frightened by her distress and did not dare sit beside her. The violins and flutes sang out as they were tuned. Suddenly, he was afraid, as it occurred to him that all the people in the boxes were staring down at them. She stood up and walked quickly to the exit. He followed her, and both of them walked aimlessly up and down the corridors, while crowds of lawyers, teachers, and civil servants, all wearing the appropriate uniforms and badges, flashed past. And the ladies and the fur coats hanging from pegs also flashed past. And the draft blew through the place, bringing with it the odor of cigar stubs. Gurov, whose heart was beating wildly, thought, Oh, Lord! Why are these people here in this orchestra? At that moment, he recalled how, when he saw Anna Sergeyevna off at the station in the evening, he had told himself it was all over and they would never meet again. But how far away the end seemed to be now. Anna paused on a narrow, dark stairway, which bore the inscription, This Way to the Upper Balcony. How you frightened me, she said, breathing heavily, pale and stunned. How you frightened me. I am half dead. Why did you come? Why? Do try to understand, Anna. Please understand, he said in a hurried whisper. I implore you, please understand. She looked at him with dread, with entreaty, with love, intently, to retain his features all the more firmly in her memory. I've been so unhappy, she went on, not listening to him. All this time I've thought only of you. I've lived on thoughts of you. I tried to forget, to forget. Why? Why have you come? A pair of schoolboys were standing on the landing above them, smoking and peering down. But Gurov did not care. And drawing Anna to him, he began kissing her face, her cheeks, her hands. What are you doing? What are you doing? She said in terror, pushing him away from her. We have both lost our senses. Go away now, tonight. I implore you by everything you hold sacred. Someone is coming. Someone was climbing up the stairs. You must go away. Anna Sergeyevna went on in a whisper. Do you hear, Dmitri Dmitrich? I'll come and visit you in Moscow. I have never been happy. I am miserable now, and I shall never be happy again. Never. Don't make me suffer any more. I swear I'll come to Moscow. We must separate now. My dear, precious darling, we have to separate. She pressed his hand and went quickly down the stairs, all the while gazing back at him. And it was clear from the expression in her eyes that she was miserable. For a while, Gurov stood there, listening to her footsteps, and then all sounds faded away, and he went to look for his coat and left the theater. 4. And Anna Sergeyevna began coming to see him in Moscow. Every two or three months, she would leave the town of S, telling her husband she was going to consult a specialist in women's disorders. And her husband neither believed her nor disbelieved her. 
In Moscow, she always stayed at the Slavyansky Bazaar Hotel. And the moment she arrived, she would send a red-capped hotel messenger to Gurov. He would visit her, and no one in Moscow ever knew about their meetings. One winter morning, he was going to visit her as usual. The messenger from the hotel had come the evening before, but he was out. His daughter accompanied him. He was taking her to school, and the school lay on the way to the hotel. Great wet flakes of snow were falling. Three degrees above freezing, and it's still snowing, he told his daughter. That's only the surface temperature of the earth. The other layers of the atmosphere have other temperatures. Yes, Papa. But why are there no thunderstorms in winter? He explained that, too. He talked, and all the while he was thinking about his meeting with the Beloved, and not a living soul knew of it, and probably no one would ever know. He was living a double life, an open and public life visible to all who had any need to know, full of conventional truth and conventional lies, exactly like the lives of his friends and acquaintances, and another which followed a secret course. And by one of those strange and perhaps accidental circumstances, everything that was to him meaningful, urgent, and important, everything about which he felt sincerely and did not deceive himself, everything that went to shape the very core of his existence, was concealed from others, while everything that was false and the shell where he hid in order to hide the truth about himself, his work at the bank, discussions at the club, conversations about women as an inferior race, and attending anniversary celebrations with his wife, all this was on the surface. Judging others by himself, he refused to believe the evidence of his eyes, and therefore he imagined that all men led their real and meaningful lives under a veil of mystery and under cover of darkness. Every man's intimate existence revolved around mysterious secrets, and it was perhaps partly for this reason that all civilized men were so nervously anxious to protect their privacy. Leaving his daughter at the school, Gurov went on to the Slavyansky Bazaar Hotel. He removed his fur coat in the lobby and then went upstairs and knocked softly on the door. Anna Sergeyevna had been exhausted by the journey and the suspense of waiting for his arrival. She had in fact expected him the previous evening. She was wearing her favorite gray dress. She was pale, and she looked at him without smiling, and he had scarcely entered the room when she threw herself in his arms. Their kisses were lingering and prolonged, as though two years had passed since they had seen each other. How were things down there? he said. Anything new? Please wait. I'll tell you in a moment. I can't speak yet. She could not speak because she was crying. She turned away from him, pressing a handkerchief to her eyes. Let her have her cry, he thought. I'll sit down and wait. And he sat down in an armchair. Then he rang and ordered tea, and while he drank the tea, she remained standing with her face turned to the window. She was crying from the depth of her emotions, in the bitter knowledge 
that their life together was so weighed down with sadness because they could only meet in secret and were always hiding from people like thieves. And that meant surely that their lives were shattered. Oh, do stop crying, he said. It was evident to him that their love affair would not soon be over and there was no end in sight. Anna Sergeyevna was growing more and more passionately fond of him, and it was beyond belief that he would ever tell her it must one day end, and if he had told her, she would not have believed him. He went up to her and put his hands on her shoulders, intending to console her with some meaningless words and to fondle her, and then he saw himself in the mirror. His hair was turning gray. It struck him as strange that he should have aged so much in these last years and lost his good looks. Her shoulders were warm and trembling at his touch. He felt pity for her, who was so warm and beautiful, though probably it would not be long before she would begin to fade and wither, as he had done. Why did she love him so much? Women had always believed him to be other than what he was and they loved in him not himself, but the creature who came to life in their imagination, the man they had been seeking eagerly all their lives, and when they had discovered their mistake, they went on loving him. And not one of them was ever happy with him. Time passed, he met other women, became intimate with them, parted from them, never having loved them. It was anything you please, but it was not love. And now, at last, when his hair was turning gray, he had fallen in love, real love, for the first time in his life. Anna Sergeyevna and he loved one another as people who are very close and dear love one another. They were like deeply devoted friends, like husband and wife. It seemed to them that fate had intended them for one another, and it was beyond understanding that one had a wife, the other a husband. It was as though they were two birds of passage, one male, one female, who had been trapped and were now compelled to live in different cages. They had forgiven one another for all they were ashamed of in the past. They forgave everything in the present and felt that this love of theirs changed them both. Formerly in moments of depression, he had consoled himself with the first argument that came into his head, but now all such arguments were foreign to him. He felt a deep compassion for her and desired to be tender and sincere. Don't cry, my darling, he said. You've cried enough. Now let us talk, and we'll think of something. Then they talked it over for a long time, trying to discover some way of avoiding secrecy and deception and living in different towns and being separated for long periods. How could they free themselves from their intolerable chains? How? How? he asked, holding his head in his hands. How? And it seemed as though in a little while the solution would be found and a lovely new life would begin for them. And to both of them, it was clear that the end was still very far away, and the hardest 
and most difficult part was only beginning. Okay, we're back. Mike, where should we begin with this story? Um, why don't well, we can begin in so many places, but I guess we should probably just begin with with our man. Here. Yeah, Gurov. Yeah. What what kind of a guy <laughs> is this? We see him in in the first section. Mm. Uh this is his trip to Yalta, the seaside resort, is laid out and his reasons for it. And I guess you'd describe him as maybe a little world-weary. He's he's kind of attained what everyone, society expects him to have attained. And he's very flawed and he's he's unhappy. He's not, you know, he's not someone I'd want my daughter to marry. I mean, he... yeah. And then, and then we have to go with him. We have to like go on his little little quest to like, <laughs> yeah, meet this lady. And and I mean, it's like I'm I'm certainly not on his side, but then I sort of am on his side. Yeah, yeah. He has such an interesting relationship with women, and and his own understanding of the impression he makes on women. Yeah, it would be very easy for this to turn us off, right? Because you hate the protagonist where you feel like it's the author's dream to say women were especially drawn to him. Yeah. You know, but there's, I think there's enough in Gurov that you also feel like he's just kind of stating this as a fact. He's not especially proud of it or, or bragging about it. He's almost objectively analyzing himself and saying, yeah, this is one of the things that curiously... Uh, when I enter into these affairs, I, I can be very witty and charming and charismatic. It, one of the other things that I found so interesting about him describing his, as he's thinking through what it's like to go into these affairs, he realizes that they all end in ugliness and complication. But yeah. that he's drawn again and again to just finding the simplicity of it. You know, the simplicity of the first rush of the affair that it makes the world seem more simple he covers so so much in that those opening two pages we find out that he's an adulterer mm -hmm. and he's been doing that for a long time and he, he's he's smart enough right to know that it gets messy yeah and then that that i feel like is one of the, the kind of the great subplots in, in this story is how will it end yeah because the relationship, oh. we learn right from the beginning that an affair, it's sort of like you could say, people often say when they talk about young love or love at first sight, they'll say, oh, that's before reality sets in. And right. there's a little bit of that, but I think it's more than that. I think of that phrase as referring to, oh, that's before you see the person's flaws, you know, that's before you see what they look like when they wake up in the morning or before you realize that they're, they can be shallow and petty at times or something like that. But I think he's basically saying that this is just an inevitability that comes with learning more about a person the way it would be, you know, not just an idealized lover, but just any person. Mm -hmm. 
that this is what human relationships are. They get complicated, that history starts to become like this web that connects everybody together, but then it hardens into this shell and you end up with something that used to be very simple. I think his phrase here is the desire to live surged in him and everything suddenly seemed simple and amusing. <laughs> and it's that, it's a kind of heaviness that sets in after you've gotten to know someone for a while and you've got all this shared history and shared backstory and you've shared some ups and downs and some basic life events that have happened to you start to weigh down the connections that you might have with this person. And so it, it kind of gives the the story of their affair a bit of suspense because you think, well, when are they going to get tired of each other? When is this phenomenon going to happen? At what point will they start to believe it's no longer the same as it was when we first encountered one another in Yalta? But then that's not exactly how the affair proceeds. I love the way she says that, you know, you won't respect me. And yeah. she, has, she has some great lines where she keeps asking him the same questions. Yeah. And it's trying to get to, you know, why are you interested in me? And I think Guru at one point says, was there anything interesting about her at all? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then, like, oh, at, man. But then at the end of at the end of the first section, as he's going to sleep, he says, ah, oh, there's something pathetic about her. <laughs> yeah, that that what I mean, what a way to end that section. It's such right? a great line. Like he starts thinking he's alone. They haven't yet had their affair. He's alone. Right. He starts thinking of her slender and delicate throat and her lovely gray eyes, and then boom, there's something pathetic about her. He thought as he fell asleep, which is just you know you're all set up at that point to think, uh, oh, he's this is a potential conquest. You know, this is him. The the more beautiful she is the the more it's going to be a positive thing for him. And instead, he's already seeing that there's something a little bit deeper than just her physical beauty, that they're going to have some kind of, you know, a more, I guess, uh, interpersonal relationship. Yeah, it, it, that, that, that's the way I think Chekhov surprises you by by establishing that, you know, she's young, there's an age difference. But then he kind of unsettles the story by having these doubts. And then it's 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 great the way Gurov becomes kind of obsessed with her. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, I don't want to make it seem as if, you know, there's too much. Like, Chekhov has a lot of ways of undercutting these protagonists, too. They're very real, and they're not idealized for the reader either or for the author and i love how gurov will say he trained to be an opera singer but he gave it up and every time you start to feel like you're looking at two beautiful people there's something that comes in and and reminds you that that these are just two people struggling through life uh, i think nabokov had the line all of chekhov's main characters and all their intellectuals are you see a continuous stumble through the stories. <laughs> then he said, but it is the stumble of a man who stumbles because he is staring at the stars. <laughs> so they have a bit of ideals and they're trying to get something right. But they're people who are a little bit hopeless too and a little bit muddled and a little 
uh, you know, they're flawed enough that it's not going to be an easy path to get to where they want to be. Yeah, I, I, I had the same, and not to toot my own horn, but I had the same uh, thoughts as Nabokov. I wrote, um, I may not really like them, but I am enjoying the struggle of understanding why they should be together and how they are different, if if at all, from any other couple. Like what what makes them special? I'm not sure there is anything special. Yeah, and although there's a little bit of the the romance, you know, that we see. I like when they have their first conversation, and they have that exchange about the dog, and they talk about how people are kind of hypocritical when they come to the the seaside and immediately start complaining about it as if they came from some better place. You know, they come from these, these remote provincial towns and then they come to Yalta, which is obviously better, but then they complain about how dull it is. Oh yeah. And then they go and they, they look at things, the warm lilac color of the water of the sea and the golden pathway of the moonlight. And you feel like it's a nice connection that they have. We've also seen his description of his wife where she's, uh, I think his phrase was, she's she's not as intelligent as she thinks she is or something like that. <laughs> yeah. And he has this thing with his wife. His attitude toward his wife is so interesting uh, and so kind of pathetic that you do feel like you can kind of put yourself in his shoes at wanting to have a little bit of an escape just from not only his wife, but the way that he is when he's with his wife. Yeah, he, he can be really cruel. There, That line where he talks about women whose, whose caresses are insecure, insincere, and he likens them as now that they're no longer in their first youth, when they wear lingerie, it reminds... <sighs> him of fish scales yeah <laughs> that, that is a nasty line that is it's an amazing paragraph so now we've moved on to section two we get a, a little bit of yalta the week the heat the activities they go to look at the the ships coming in and there's that great detail by Chekhov about how in Yalta all the elderly ladies were dressed like young women and there were innumerable generals. <laughs> <laughs> and then they jump in and have their affair. And we kind of skip right over it. We understand that it's happened, but it's yeah. it's it's barely it barely registers in the prose as far as uh, we don't get any details or any physical description or anything like that. It doesn't exactly fade to black. We stay with the characters uh, and we hear what they're thinking before and after, uh, but it, it skips over it. But anyway, then it goes right into that paragraph you were talking about where he talks about his previous affairs, including with his wife. And um, you realize what a what an experienced guy he is and how this has registered with him in the past all of these liaisons that he's had and then it's contrasted with anna and she then this is where she kind of reveals what a complicated woman she is this is kind of the first time we've really seen what's going on in her mind and she's she despises herself which is kind of interesting but is a little maybe would not be as interesting as what she follows that with, which is 
I despise myself and have no desire to justify myself. It isn't my husband I have deceived, but myself. And not only now, I have been deceiving myself for a long time. And Mm, that gives her a really interesting drama or dilemma. It's not... She's not saying I was good and I got bored and so now I'm committing this sin and so I'm going to hate myself for committing the sin. It's more like I wanted things from life and I didn't get them. I at home I live this life of cliché and I I pretend like I'm more interested in my husband than I am, but he's a flunky and uh finally that became too much to bear and I came here and yet here I am having this affair, which is just like any other cliche. So I'm doing it all over again. That's kind of her, kind of where she is in this. And it, it makes it really interesting for me. I was wondering if she's going to find any kind of redemption or if he would be able to talk her out of that or where where this would leave the two of them when she has this really kind of complicated and unusual reaction to their affair i I love that scene where they walk and see the morning mist Mm, yeah yeah and um i think that's at the heels of you know her sort of coming alive for the first time in the story like you were describing yeah And, and then there's that moment where the two of them and then it's omniscient narrator kind of omniscient narrator where Gurov basically says that we have this ideal and then we we fall short of it with our thoughts and actions yeah (laughs) yeah and the 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 beautiful passage where he's listening to the sea yeah yeah the monotonous muffled thunder of the sea and how that makes him reflect on the impermanence of life and the human condition and it just flows so naturally you're really moving in a lot of different directions in this section, but it doesn't feel that way. It just feels like, you know, it's very simply told and it's easy to follow. It doesn't feel like, oh, here's where I inject this philosophical paragraph about the sea. You know, it really feels natural to who Gurav is and, and where the two of them are at this point. Yeah, I mean, at that point, I think that it's going to end and they're going to be they'll never see each other again yeah which is what she says as she gets on the train right i want to look at you one more time we'll never see each other again yeah and so at that point we move to section three he goes home to moscow we get some beautiful descriptions of of cold and frosty moscow he settles back in he, I love this detail. He reads three newspapers a day and declares that on principle he never reads newspapers. <laughs> <laughs> and he kind of settles back into the whirl of life and, and enjoys it, certain things about it. But he's changed and he's a little bit surprised that he's not able to forget her. That's sort of the first we see that maybe this isn't going to be just like any other affair that he's had. And then there's this beautiful moment where an official is leaving a party and he kind of blurts out a description of Anna to the official. And the right. and he's he's sort of disappointed that the official wants to move on. And instead, the official then calls him back, Dimitri, Dimitri. And, he's, <laughs> and we're all expecting him to be like, you know, why don't you go to look her up or you know i met a a a fascinating woman once too or you know something tell me more about this 
this woman you met. And instead he says, you were quite right just now. The sturgeon wasn't fresh. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so, uh, you just feel like, it's almost like a door slamming shut. And you feel like Gurov is surrounded by these awful and dirty degrading people with savage manners, wasting their nights and having dull days, and he can't sleep, he's fed up with everything, but you just feel how trapped he is and how what's changed for him is he's maybe no longer going to be able to live the kind of lie that his life is meaningful, that it's exposing how petty and shallow all of the activities that he's been filling his days with really are. Yeah, I think it, at, this is the moment of the story where I most identified with him. The, the, the desire to see her one more time. Mm, yeah. That kind of transcended all of the baggage of his past behavior. Yeah, I, could, I could instantly relate to that, that, the idea that just to see this person one more time. Yeah. So I, I love the, and then what the way the dog is um, a clue. I, I really like that detail. Right. He goes to her town. <laughs> he sees the dog first. <laughs> That's he the sees, best. He sees like a heinous fence. And he's like, yeah. he, ha- he hates the fence more and more. He hates the fence. And he <laughs> says, you'd run away from a fence like this. It's almost <laughs> like it's the fence is like a key to yeah. Anna. That Like, no wonder she came to Yalta. No wonder she had an affair. She lives behind this big fence, this awful <laughs> fence. <laughs> uh, and then the dog. This is, the dog is, is not that prominent in the story, but has some really key uh, points. So the, the first time we see the dog is where he's trotting behind Anna at the beginning of the story. And then he's part of the initial exchange where Gurav says, may I give your dog a bone? And she says, he doesn't bite. And then this part is my favorite, where mm-hmm. Gurav sees the dog with an old woman who's out walking the dog. But Gurav gets so excited, he can't remember the dog's name. <laughs> and it's just this nice, um, it's a really nice detail. You know, it's the kind of thing Chekhov was so good at, was that yeah. that kind of detail where it's it's very true to life. And it's it's funny, I guess, but it's also kind of sad. And it shows the, it's a little bit absurd, you know, but it just seems like most stories you would, the protagonist would remember the dog's name and, and that would be the entree back into Anna's world. And instead yeah. he doesn't remember the name, but it's because he's so excited. He can't think of the name. <laughs> 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 then the marvelous scene where he goes to see her at the theater and this, I mean, by now it feels like these scenes, you almost feel like you're 60 pages into a novel or something. We've, the settings are so vivid, but, uh, he goes to the theater, they go to see the geisha, which I had never really known what that was before. Um, I always just, just blew past that, the reference. So this time I looked it up. I don't know if you're familiar with the geisha. No. So it is a musical comedy sort of in the style of Gilbert and Sullivan. Huh. And it opened in London in 1896. And this this story was written three years later. Uh, and actually, Chekhov went to see the Russian premiere of it, which was in Yalta in 1899. We know he attended the, the premiere. 
And it was a huge worldwide success. It's a story of illicit love in a foreign land. And it's about the unhappiness and disappointment of marriage. So it's also, in addition to being kind of a timely reference, it also has some themes that resonate a bit. And it was a smash hit. And its most famous song was called The Amorous Goldfish. (laughs) So kind of a, a little bit of a farcical musical comedy. I guess. So there's this beautiful part where Gurav sees her at the theater. And what I love about that when he sees her is he realizes that she's not remarkable at all. That yeah. he, he doesn't say she stood out in this provincial town for her, you know, exceptional beauty. What was she doing here? Trapped. She was a diamond in the rough kind of thing. But instead he says she's not remarkable at all, but he's flooded with feelings for her. <laughs> And I love the way that paragraph ends where it says uh, he thought and dreamed. It tells us where his state of mind is in a very simple way. He thought and dreamed. Oh, at this point, I'm starting to wonder if if things are going to turn around, if they're going to work out, or if, if they're just doomed. You almost feel like someone might die at this point. <laughs> or be discovered, you know. Yeah, I I think, you know, readers who read it and have allowed years to pass between readings probably don't remember what happens at the end just because it's it's such a, you know, to me, it's such a a living story. You kind of enter it, look around, come back out. Yeah. And And the ending is, it's not exactly ambiguous, but it's not, it doesn't have a real exclamation mark at the end either. It's more like an ellipses. Yeah, I, I really, I really love the ending. It's a, uh, it's, it's, it's an unusual ending. Yeah. So let's let's make our way there and then talk about the ending. But first, we see them uh, at the theater. He follows her. She says she's never been happy. She thinks only of him, but she doesn't want to see him because she wants to forget. It's kind of like the Matrix. You know, is it better to live out the lie? It's easier. It's better, safer not to, not to have to mm. face the truth. But she does say she'll come to visit him in Moscow, and then she actually does. Uh, in section four, I, I, I like, I like the part where she tells her husband she's going to Moscow to be treated for for a women a woman's disorder, and her husband neither believed her nor disbelieved her. such a you know such a perfect encapsulation of their relationship that he's he can't even be bothered to to believe or disbelieve one way or the other and then we hear this um what it's like to live a double life when everything is on on the surface is meaningless and everything hidden is essential and i guess gurov is wondering if that's why humans always want to protect their privacy we see really how in love she is and and he's starting to get a little bit cold and which is sort of expected from what we know of him and how he tends to think that relationships end and and what's inevitable about this and at this point sort of halfway through section 4 i started to wonder if he was going to feel trapped and and if he would end it in kind of a brutal way you know that it would he would have to be the one to say I'm sorry I ruined you. I'm sorry society doesn't let us do this, but I have my life to live and I'm going to stick to 
stick to that and you'll be happier without me anyway and and goodbye um that's sort of a a more conventional ending or 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 direction for the story to take but but it doesn't exactly go that way we get instead we get this that marvelous paragraph where he sees himself in the mirror and he sees that he has gray hair and then it's a line that in the context i found it completely shocking where he realizes that he's in love with her yeah it's like every but it's probably the most idealistic thought in the whole story where yeah everything else has been undermined or has been their cynicism has sort of put a shadow on every everything else that's bright and then here's this just standing there brightly where you think oh my god this is the first time in his life he's been in love and then you really yeah. start rooting for them i i don't think people remember that part of the story yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> my take yeah so then they try to figure out what to do you know try to find love together they've have to figure out a way to get out of these separate cages that they've been living in or how to shake free from their circumstances or somehow be together in a life that's not a deception. And he doesn't know how. He can't find a solution. But at the ending, I don't know if you read the ending as... How do you read the ending? Do you read it as a happy ending or hopeful? Um, Not really happy, but sort of we'll continue to see each other. Yeah. And it feels like all the other times where he's felt like this is going to end. It's just a matter of time. I can't even mention this to her because she won't believe it. But I know it's inevitable. Now things have changed for him. And he's thinking it's going to be a long journey. We're going to have a long journey together. Might have a hard yeah. beginning, but we're going to have a long journey. Yeah, it says the, the, the last line is the hardest and most dis difficult part was only beginning. And I think the first time I read it, I thought it said was only the beginning. So I was like, oh, yeah, but the difficulties are to come. So uh, and like, how is he how is he going to I mean, how is he going to deal with his wife and his kids and his bank job? I mean, I yeah. just just practically speaking, it just seems like a big mess coming up. You know what this reminded me of? What I what I actually just watched uh -huh. on the plane on my trip was. The Graduate. I don't want to spoil the ending or here's a spoiler alert if someone wants to skip ahead a minute or two. But, you know, how they end, where they end on the bus. And they're just, mm -hmm. they've gone through the big scene at the church where she leaves her fiancé and, and everyone's angry. And they have that big fight to get out of the church. And then they run and they escape and they're on the bus. And then they sit there and there's no more dialogue. You just see their faces mm -hmm. And they're sort of laughing at first, and then things just get quiet, and their faces just get subdued, and you just read on their faces this feeling of, like, okay, so we have this life together now. We have this love we have for one another that we've just expressed in a very public way, but... Oh my mm -hmm. God! How are we going to spend the next, you know, fifty years? What's it going to be like when we we go to family events and and how yeah. are we going to how are we going to manage all of this? Yeah, it was that the first time you saw it? No, no, no. Oh, okay. Um, but it yeah. was the first time that my son saw it, and I was so uh, excited to have him watch it because it's it's a movie I love so much. And we yeah. watched it on the plane, and I sort of suggested that we started at the same time. 
you know, because uh-huh. we're each watching it on the back of our seat, you know, on the, the video screen in our airplane seat. Right. And uh, he kind of rolled his eyes at that, you know, that the idea that that I was so intent on wanting to watch it together. <laughs> Actually, I watched it on the way out on the on the first flight and then on the return flight home i wanted to watch it with him so i watched it twice in the last couple of weeks Mm. such a good movie yeah okay so Chekhov himself had been diagnosed with tuberculosis two years before writing the story and he had a lung hemorrhage he knew he was dying i thought Mm. it was interesting that he didn't have gurov dying he could have shortened up gurov's life as well but but he didn't he just sort of let this resonate with the two of them contemplating the the life ahead of them and how the you know as you say the difficult part was beginning yeah and this was one of chekhov's last stories i read one count is out of 68 main stories that he wrote this was number 65 so he was he was getting near the end and and he then died within 5 years of completing the story at the age of 44. Wow. So, what haven't we talked about yet? What do you admire about this story? Um, I think the the, the how much how, how the lack of sympathy I feel toward them. Mm. And that how it's just brilliant the way it has all these twists. Mm-hmm. It doesn't lose me completely. There, there are moments where I just, I get kind of fed up with them. Yeah. And um, but I, I'm still cheering for them. Yeah. There's so many themes in this, and I'm not a big person into talking about themes and and stories, you know, removed from the characters of the setting. But I, I really do think this is kind of, you know, as people have said, like the repost against uh, Anna Karenin and. Mm. A, and adultery and mm. kind of the mystery of adultery. I, I, I think it's, you know, it's never a simple thing cheating on someone and that there are many steps and decisions you make before you actually commit the act. Would you say that this is about love? I, I think it's really about uh, against the predictability of life. I, I, to me, it's, yeah. more, it's more about being in, a, in, a, in an awful routine yeah, like an emotional, not not just like a commute or something, but an emotional routine that you have nothing to look forward to. I think that's one of the things, you know, I try to convey to my daughter is that you should you should have something that you'd look forward to, if not that day, that week. That's kind of how I read it too. I I don't I know there are a lot of readings that say it's about the power of realizing true love, or it's about the power, you know, because of that moment in the story where he realizes he's in love for the first time and that is kind of a catalyst but i feel mm-hmm. like that could be something else as well i i don't feel as if this is just about the power of love but about something that wakes you up from the the dullness or the dead feeling that creeps over you as you go about your daily life that it's reminding you or that it's you know chekhov is painting this picture of people who are kind of drifting through life doing all of their uh, usual social things without really expanding into what they care about the most or 
or what will make them feel the most alive? Yeah, there, there, there are comments about conformity, I think, throughout. Yeah. Like the narrow Ma- Moscow people or, yep. you know, the judgments in Yalta. And... If you think of it in terms of Anna Karenina, you almost do feel like Chekhov is sort of saying, well, sure, it's a problem that society condemns people who, you know, for sexual affairs, but it's it's an even bigger problem that we've all internalized limitations to ourselves and our own happiness and our own ability to feel the fullness and richness of life. And that might come out in not allowing ourselves to pursue the true love that we might have for someone, but it it might also come out by not exploring some other passion you might have as well, that instead we just get all bottled up by these day-to-day, you know, interactions with people and just our our general routines that are turning everything into a, a kind of gray palette. Yeah, you wonder if if Chekhov really, how, how he be, behaved. I mean, I, I read something that he had slept with his teacher's wife mm. and that he had his first sexual experience when he was 13. Mm. I feel like he, you know, biographers say he, he never really missed out on anything. If if there was something to be done or experienced, he went ahead and did it. Yeah, he would resist what he's describing here. He and, and some people said he was a little bit cruel in that, and he was a little bit manipulative with some of the women in his life in order to escape that feeling. But he does seem to be somebody who, you know, really valued that freedom. And so... Does this make you want to live in a different way? Does it change you in any way? <laughs> Would you hand this story to somebody that you you see uh, swimming through life in a, uh, that you you want to jolt them out of it? <laughs> I think I think they they would accuse me of trying to mess up their lives. I think this is one of these stories you have to kind of come to on your own terms. And right, I I, I think this story makes me feel pretty good about myself i guess <laughs> you're not living a boring dull I'm, life I, I think i've been pretty lucky in, in life that <laughs> I, I i don't feel uh, like i'm not enjoying you know the day-to-day yeah so. <laughs> well that's good but maybe you're fooling yourself yeah that's true <laughs> I, I i have been telling people though um especially young people that I don't think uh, marriage should be a default to a relationship, and that mm. I, 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 the more I live, I think I, I see uh, large groups of people that should never be married. Mm. They get to that certain point, and they figure that's the next step. Yeah, and it's kind of like kids having kids is kind of like that too. People yeah. say, "Well, if I." If I don't have kids, then what would I do with myself kind of thing? Or maybe that will make me feel better. And it's it can yeah. be a mistake to go into it for the wrong reasons. Okay, so anything else before we wrap up here? Uh, no, but I'm glad uh, I had a chance to, to read it again. It uh, makes, makes me, I guess that's one reason that I feel like I enjoy my life is that I am rereading books. Yeah. And I felt a little bit like this is kind of a perfect short story. It's really hard to find a flaw in this story for me anyway. Yeah, no, I agree. 
Okay. Well, let's leave things there. Mike, thanks again for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to El Presidente for joining me. I hope you all go out and buy some Chekhov works and read them. And if his plays are being performed somewhere near you, you should check those out as well. They are worth your time. And I'm glad you found this podcast episode to be worth your time. I'm glad to be here chattering away. And I'm very grateful to you for joining me for this episode and for however many of the previous 149 that you've been a part of. I'm already looking forward to the next one. And I hope you'll be here for that one too. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.